All right, let's get started. I am Brandon Mercer. And I am Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, July 21st, 2016, and this is episode 35 of Garbage. Excellent. We have a lot of things to complain about tonight, don't we? Sure. Complaining isn't really the word for it. I think explaining with a little bit of... um, Sass. Sass or contention or whatever it is. I don't know. Yeah. Um, But before we get into all that, I wanted to tell you... um, Sounds like your cat has a lot to complain about, too. (laughs) (laughs) He is happy. (laughs) Um, Well, I went... um, You know, we had been talking about the Apple devices... And the last time I used one, I think, was in 2008, maybe. Maybe it was even before that. And, uh, you know, we had talked about compelling reasons for me to try one, and I asked a bunch of coworkers if they had anything, and nobody really came through. And I said, well, I'll go to the store, and I'll get my hands on one, and I'll see uh, what they're like. And the first thing that happened when I walked in the store was I felt like the Android devices, whether it was the phone or the tablet or... Even Chromebooks, I know it's not an Android device, but it's a Google product. I felt like I was living in the Stone Ages because I picked up uh, the, I think I picked up an iPhone 6 and instantly, like, it looked better. Like, the clarity of stuff on the screen looked better. And, like, swiping around and navigation felt so real, it didn't feel like oh, I'm swiping an electronic device, and it must, um, you know, read my inputs and decide what to do with them. It just felt natural. Mm-hmm. And then I started to use the iPhone for a while, and I looked at, like, interface stuff, how to navigate email, how they lay things out, and I really, um, I really felt like I'd been missing out on a whole bunch for a long time. Hey, uh, sorry, your cat is coming through really loud. Tank, do you want to be on garbage tonight? <laughs> Sounds like he, Predator. <laughs> he's literally sitting right next to the microphone. But anyway, using that, that device, I played a game on it, which isn't really something that I do too much with my uh, like mobile devices. But uh, Was it Pokemon Go? It was not. It was, uh, <laughs> it was like some race car game, and yeah. it was using accelerometers and stuff. And I remember, like, moving the device and feeling like it actually just did what I intended it to do. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the tablet or the Android phone, when I play these device, when I play these games, uh, the accelerometers are delayed or jumpy or staggered or I don't know what what how it is to describe it, but they don't feel fluid and they don't feel natural. So anyway, I played around with several devices. Uh, I definitely decided against using an iPod for doing mobile development, and uh, I made my way towards the iPad section, and uh, from a price point standpoint, the iPad mini seemed to make the most sense for us, and then that way we could use it for more than just me doing development. And so we picked up one of those, and we've been using it as a family for a little while now, several days, I guess. And uh, I really like it, and and in fact going back to my Android phone feels even more clumsy now than I guess I perceived it as before I had my hands on the, you know, the Apple product. So it's, it's strange how you use that stuff and you see so much, um, difference. Yeah. I have, uh, pretty much the same experience whenever, cause my iPhone is my daily phone. And then anytime I need to get one of my Android phones out of my desk drawer to do a test or something, it's, so frustrating and slow mm-hmm. and even like the nexus s phones that i have that run like android 4 right um it's just like you turn it on and then like it looks like it's ready and you tap on like the button to go to the app drawer or whatever and it just doesn't do anything and you tap yeah. it a few more times and it's not doing anything and then eventually it comes up and then it like tries to respond to all of your previous taps right away and it's just like what are you doing like why are you even showing the like the user the the full interface if you're not ready for anything yet mm-hmm. yeah i definitely well you're talking about tapping uh the typing experience on the iPhones was significantly better than what it is on Android and i never understood that 
until I got one in my hands. And I don't know what it is, if it's like the way they do the heptech feedback or whether it's the click sound that it makes or just the touch feels more natural. Um, on Android, I, I swear it's like several, you can feel the delay between like, no, I really did touch that and when it perceives the input. Um, and, and I guess, you know, even when the applications say that they're ready is what I'm saying is that they're not really that responsive still. And you have like what, eight cores in some of these phones and four cores in some of the others. Yeah. And you would think that they could just handle this kind of stuff, but they really don't. And, and it's obvious when you get side by side, um, texting, you know, I was writing an email on the iPhone six and then my wife texted me and. I picked up my phone and I was trying to text and it was so blatant and so obvious uh, the difference between the two. Yeah. So do you think anyway, that you'll eventually switch to a iOS phone as well? I, I don't know that I'm going to get another phone. We'll, we'll see how this all plays out. But I have a feeling that uh, my next kind of like mobile device will be something like a, a soft client of some sort. Um, I, I kind of made myself a little packed <laughs> that said, if this Nexus 6P isn't my last phone, like if it drives me crazy, I'm not going to buy another mobile phone for any number of reasons. So, um, when all this stuff happened, I was like, okay, I'm tired of fiddling around. You know, there's so much cost, uh, whether it's distraction or money or time or anything for very, very little convenience. And so I think I'm going to see if I can just change my workflow a little bit and, you know, still be able to have communication in an emergency situation without all the other, you know, vulnerability updates and usability problems that come along with mobile devices. Yeah. Um, I've tried switching to like a dumb phone. Uh, I have the Moto Phone F3, I think it is, with the, um, what is it, the uh, e-ink screen, mm -hmm. um, and it, like, lasts for weeks and weeks on a single charge. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, it gets the job done if you need to make phone calls and, like, do the really slow T9 texting, but um, I think the only thing that I would miss from a, from a phone is uh, some kind of maps. Yeah. Um, and like maybe the train schedules or something like that. Um, yeah. but, uh, and I've tried like using, I have an old Blackberry, like the really tiny one. I don't even remember what model it is, but, uh, it still runs like the really old, uh, version of Blackberry. Um, and that can at least load like Google maps. Um, and obviously has the physical keyboard, but I don't know. In the end, I just keep going back to like an iPhone or something. Yeah, I can see why. It's obvious. And actually, uh, maybe later on we can talk about uh, a little bit of like the mobile application stuff that I dove into once I got that iPad because it was a fun experience and I learned a ton of stuff um, in doing so that maybe people are interested in, different from Android, different from other mobile development. Yeah. Cool. All right, so then, yeah, we'll go back to the uh, app development later maybe. Yeah. Um. So I guess an update to the Z-Wave stuff that I was playing with. Uh, my controller died and I had to get a new one. And it, uh, I was running the washer and dryer today and it wasn't getting, it wasn't like alerting me for anything. So I tried to log into it. And then even though the device claims that like you, it's, you can use it completely offline, you can't, as I found out today. Like it has to tie, it's, it like ties itself to your account with the company that makes the product and from the web interface that runs on the actual controller, you can only do certain things. Um, and then when you try and like click on something else, it says like, Oh, you need to be logged in. And the provider or the company that makes this just happened to be having an outage, uh, this week where their servers were getting like flooded or something. So I couldn't log in to my account with them which all it does is just bounce you back to the controller, like your local controller with some kind of, you know, cookie or something that it authenticates you with. So I couldn't even do anything on this device that, you know, is sitting downstairs. So I just ended up sending it back. So this is now the second one that I've returned. Um, and then I actually bought a, you can buy the Z-Wave 
um, it's just like a USB stick, and then it does all the Z-Wave communication on the stick itself, and then you can plug it into like a Linux or OpenBSD machine or whatever, and you can just talk to it like a serial device. And then you can do certain commands through that serial interface, like if you wanted to automate you know, sending out Z-Wave commands. But it actually manages all of the Z-Wave network and all the communication on the USB stick itself, so you don't actually have to like have a daemon running on your on whatever it's plugged into to manage all that. So I thought that was kind of cool. So I actually ordered one of those. It's um, obviously much cheaper than the full controller, but maybe I can just uh, stick it into my OpenBSD router and do some Z-Wave stuff that way. Yeah, that would be cool to find out. I I mean, this is just another perfect case of you know these Internet of Things devices that have to phone home in order to work at all. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we, we consider a denial of service you know, a security vulnerability, but can you imagine if these things were running or monitoring some sort of, you know, critical infrastructure when we start to rely, when everything starts to rely on that, and then you're like, hey, just denial of service this server, and then the entire block loses their lights or whatever, you know? Yeah, and I mean, the I specifically bought this one controller because it said it doesn't require an internet connection and that you can manage yeah. everything offline because I didn't want to have to, you know, authenticate against any central server. Um, so I guess they lied. Um, so yeah, I guess that's the, uh, Z-Wave stuff. So my, uh, official review of the Vera or Vera plus Z-Wave controller is that it sucks and you should not buy it. Uh, but I got that USB dongle and it should be arriving soon. So I'll, uh, update everyone on how that works with OpenBSD next week, I guess. Nice. Um, and what else? An update. Uh, last week I mentioned at the end of the show that I wanted to start a, uh, Chicago area BSD users group. So I went ahead and registered the domain shybug.org and set up a mailing list for it. Um, and someone suggested that I use, I forgot the name of the software. It's like MMJ. Yeah. MLMMJ. Um, and it's kind of like easy MLM, but, uh, I guess newer and easier, but it was very easy to set up the list and, you know, set some options like you have to be subscribed to post to it and everything. Um, so I set that up and sent out an email to the MISC, um, OpenBSD list announcing it. And so far there's like 15 people subscribed to it, which is a pretty good turnout. Um, and I think there was a there's a FreeBSD uh, Twitter account that tweeted uh, a mention of it, and that got a whole bunch of retweets. So I think a lot of people outside of uh, OpenBSD saw um, saw it that way. So um, I took a break from writing kernel drivers on my Chromebook today to write some sweet PHP code um, that. <laughs> runs the site at shybug.org now, which is, uh, I wrote a mailing list, uh, archive viewer in PHP, uh, and it stores all the messages in IMAP. And then, so when you load the page, it like talks to my IMAP server and fetches a threaded message list. And then that's all cached and everything. Mm -hmm. So it was nice to go from one extreme to the other of writing kernel drivers to writing PHP code. Um, but yeah, so we're, uh, hopefully going to be, um, getting some people together in Chicago and, uh, talking about BSD. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, that is cool. Do you have any idea when the first talk is going to be? Um, so a guy that I know, um, reached out to me as soon as I announced it and said that, uh, he has, his office might. Uh, be willing to give us space um, when they move to their new office in uh, August. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe sometime in August would be the first meeting. Um, I don't know if it's going to be like a full formal, like someone's going to give a talk first, or if it's just going to be like everybody meet up at a bar or a restaurant or something to kind of meet everybody and then maybe do a, like a formal presentation or whatever the next time. Um, But yeah, I'm uh, excited about it looking forward to meeting some people that would be cool i i would anticipate you guys would probably have um the potential for a lot of turnout 
uh, given the amount of tech people that are in Chicago. I mean, that's a big city. Well, yeah, like in my, you know, welcome message to everybody on the list, I was like, I can't believe there wasn't any other um, OpenBSD users list, you know, let alone like just a generic BSD uh, user group. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know where all these people are hiding, but apparently there's at least 14 of us in the area that are interested in meeting up so far. So, um, yeah. That's pretty exciting. And you actually have been talking with a couple other folks who have launched uh, BSD user groups, one in Colorado, um, one in, uh, what is it, New York, upstate New York. Mm-hmm. Nice bug. And there's another one in there too, isn't there? Uh, cat bug, I want to say, in Phoenix. I can't remember if that's one or not or if I'm just making that up. But anyway, um, they've all started BSD user groups and they've been getting talks and people have been attending. Or I'm, I know what I'm thinking. The the one in um, uh, that Andrew Fresh does in uh, Portland. Mm, yeah. So anyway, those guys have been putting together, uh, I don't know if it's monthly or weekly or whatever, get-togethers for BSD users for a while now, and they seem to be doing well, and they've uh, been very receptive at helping other people get started, and uh, quite a few grassroots, I guess, BSD user groups have have spun up. I don't know if there's any other type of BSD user group other than grassroots, but quite a few of them are uh, doing well now through that small group of people. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I guess I'll keep people updated as it goes along in case you want to start your own local... BSD users group. Um, all the PHP code that I wrote today for the mailing list archives, and that's going to be running the site, um, will probably be open source if you just want to throw it up somewhere and have your own stuff running. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's about it for the shy bug. Um, I could talk about the Chromebook stuff. I feel like we've talked about that every week for a while now. We have talked about it quite a bit. Maybe we could talk about um, the OpenBSD hackathon that's going on this week. Yeah, there is a network hackathon going on. I don't even know where. I don't know where either. Uh, Let's find out. Let's do some research, Brandon. All right, let's see. Um, This website is terrible. Hackathons. (laughs) There they are. Um, N2K16 in Prague. Uh, Sounds with, like a good place. Yeah, with 18 developers. And the t-shirt for the event is Puffy pushing a lock off of a bridge, saying, mm-hmm. no big lock on my bridge. And as that is alluding to, they are uh, progressing on removing the big lock around the network stuff. Yeah, and for anybody who isn't familiar with the, um, I guess, post-hackathon uh, conference that we did in uh, Calgary. Uh, MPI stood up in front of the room after we've, we'd have like hours and hours of discussion and deliberation at the whiteboards, and he reduced it to having 24 showers and a single door for the shower. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what else did he use? He used the example of uh, an, uh, an envelope and sending messages using an envelope. And uh, Basically, what's going on here is there's been a ton of work in the, I guess, network infrastructure and the drivers for uh, network controllers and many other areas as well to be able to to do more fine grain locking and uh, essentially get more performance out of the network stack in addition to improving PF so that PF can make better use of the hardware that it's running on rather than just being tied to a particular core or only being able to use a particular core of a a multi-core CPU. So that is what the goal is, and they've been making... uh, There's some interesting things happening in the wireless arena right now. Um, Just improvements. Hey, no wonder our 802.11g is kind of slow. We don't enable this. Everybody else enables this. How does this look? And it's like a two-line fix, and I threw that on my APU too, and it has definitely made a, a marked improvement, it seems. Nice. Uh, yeah, I saw there were some IWN fixes uh, getting tossed around as well. Yeah. 
IWN fixes, IWM improvements, and um, or, 802.11-something. Yeah. What was it? 802.11, um, I don't know. One of those files in, in that folder <laughs> yeah. was the one that needed an adjustment. So, um, And Reich imported SwitchD, yep. which is a work in progress um, to implement the open switch standard. Um, I don't really know too much about that. Yeah, I don't know anything about open switch, but uh, if it has to do with networking, Rake is going to be on it, and he's going to be building something cool yeah. <laughs> for OpenBSD to have. Uh, what else? It's kind of a DH, weird... Sorry, go ahead. Uh, DH client improvements. And, uh, well, is, I don't know if this is on the public list or not, but... Uh, uh, DH client changes for mainly uh, things like getting new DHCP leases for um, wireless. So if you're on a particular uh, access point and you change access points, being able to track if you had a prior lease on there in the uh, DHCP leases interface file. And so there's some discussion about what's the best way to handle that, what should we be doing, what can we do. Um, can we make anything better than what everybody else has? And um, I think there's probably a dozen emails in that thread already, so it's a pretty uh, pretty uh, hot topic, it seems. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, it's kind of a weird time to have a hackathon because the tree mm -hmm. just locked. So um, people are, like, hacking on stuff, but they can't really commit anything, uh, like, that might change stuff for the worse mm -hmm. um, because <laughs> the tree's about to you know hard lock and then make the release for 6.0 um, but I guess that's why it's just a network hackathon instead of a uh, general hackathon yeah um, and I and I guess the idea was to, to lock the tree early this time right so that we have the general hackathon soon after this right uh, yeah but is the tree going to be unlocked before um, that I don't know, actually, now that you mention it, because if we're in a lock now and that hackathon's a couple weeks away, yeah. it probably won't be. Because I have, like, four new drivers that I've written for the Chromebook that I can't even, like, do anything with because the tree's locked. <laughs> um, so I'm just, like, accumulating all of this, this massive amount of code on my Chromebook. Well, you okay, so let's talk about the Chromebook. Last week, you said um, you had a neat idea that you were going to do with the light strip on the back of the Pixel. Yes. Did you do it? Uh, not yet, because I kind of got sidetracked. And um, what else? Is it neat enough that you could give a teaser? Not really. Okay. So I don't want to like make it seem like it's awesome and will dazzle everyone but it was kind of neat but um anyway so i'm making so that required talking to the chrome embedded controller to mm -hmm. um to like custom light bar stuff and i didn't really want to do it all in the kernel so i made a dev chrome ec device like that you can open and send ioctals to um to actually change the light bar stuff so okay. i'm gonna do that and um you know making a user land device like that is a more work. So I kind of got distracted from um, that by some other drivers, which were, uh, I couldn't suspend and resume my the Chromebook. Um, Ted, you asked, and I was like, he asked when I had the, um, well, the, we couldn't do it on the HP because we were booting off of a USB uh, MMC disk, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it obviously wouldn't be able to resume because it would have unmounted the root file system and it would have gotten all screwed up. So I didn't even like really try. But then I tried it on the Chromebook Pixel because Ted Yu was asking and it would suspend. And then when you, like I could see that the light bar would actually shut off. So I knew it was actually suspending. But then when you would try and when you'd wake it up, it would instantly reboot. Like instead of the display coming on and it, you know, doing its normal resume thing, you would just see the Chromebook uh, warning screen. Mm -hmm. So I started looking into it and um, I tried it under Chrome OS and it actually did the same thing. And I thought, how the hell does Chrome OS not have the ability to resume properly on a Chromebook? Um, which I 
much later found out was just because I had never logged into Chrome OS. And once you log into Chrome OS, it tells the TPM chip, like it writes some crypto keys there, and those are needed to resume on Chrome OS. And so anyway, so the, the point is that the TPM chip that's on the machine, it's getting initialized by core boot when you start the laptop up. But then when you go to suspend it, you have to tell the TPM chip to save its state because when you power it back on, uh, core boot tries to power the TPM chip back up and it tells it to restore the state. And if you hadn't saved it before you uh, suspend, the TPM chip would get all confused and it would just restart the machine. Mm-hmm. Like as a security mechanism, I guess. So I right. started um, you know, researching this and trying to figure out why um, people were even having this problem under Chrome OS. And long story short, we needed a TPM driver in OpenBSD. So I found one in FreeBSD that was actually written by two OpenBSD developers a long time ago. And it was imported into FreeBSD, but not OpenBSD. Um, I don't really know why. So I pulled that code out of FreeBSD and ripped out all the junk in it that we didn't need and all the weird like ifdef OpenBSD code that was like, you know, decades old that doesn't even work anymore. And basically just made a stripped down TPM driver that just uh, attaches by ACPI. It finds the TPM driver in the, um, or device in the AML and then attaches and then listens for the machine about to suspend, and then as soon as it does, it just tells the TPM chip to save its state. And so once I got all that working, uh, suspend and resume magically worked. That is awesome. Yeah, and so um, this is also an issue for ThinkPads, because on the OpenBSD mailing list, some people have written in and said that they can't suspend the machine. Um and our advice to that, or like, you know, someone will reply to them and just say, try disabling the TPM in the BIOS, and that fixes it for them. And it's the same problem. I don't know why it's right. specific to ThinkPads, but some other machines, you don't have to tell the TPM chip to save state, and you can suspend and resume just fine. Um, but obviously with the Chromebook, you can't, there's no BIOS menu, so you can't tell it to disable the TPM. So Coreboot just sets it up regardless, and it's up to us to... Um, tell it to save state before we suspend. So after the tree unlocks, I will uh, post this driver to uh, wherever and hopefully get it committed. And then uh, at least on the Chromebook and those ThinkPads, you won't have to d- around with any BIOS settings anymore. Yeah, that'll be cool. Um, I actually have a couple questions about that. So I'm not I'm not too clear on how this particular TPM device works. Is this something where uh, you know how we were flipping flags in Core Boot for other things. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't something you can control with that, where you could disable it with a with a flag. No, you could obviously just recompile uh, Core Boot and tell it not to um, initialize the TPM. But yeah, I'm but trying flags to... are just for like timeouts and configuration and stuff, right? Yeah, there's no uh, BIOS or no TPM setting in there, and obviously okay. I'm like trying to do everything I can to avoid having to reflash a custom core boot because I want OpenBSD just to work out of the box. Yeah, agreed. So let me let me ask you about the process because this is the thing that I think is interesting. How did you find out that um, that TPM module, you, it, it's a subtle jump and I know you probably lost hours on it. When you said in, in uh, Chrome OS it wouldn't resume either and then you made a jump and said, oh, I found out that it was the TPM how, tell, I want to know how you found out that uh, the TPM was the pr- particular trigger for this thing restarting. Um, it wasn't anything really scientific. Uh, I just tried to uh, suspend and resume. So I suspended and resumed in Linux, like with the USB um, SD card that I have. Uh-huh. Uh, I have an Arch Linux installed to it that has my custom like hacked up Linux kernel, and that could suspend and resume fine. So I knew that there was, so like, it wasn't like a hardware issue. Um, Mm -hmm. but then I would try it under Chrome OS and it wouldn't work. And so I thought, well, that's really weird. What is different about Chrome OS and a normal Linux? So I just was like Googling, you know, why, like, I can't remember what I was searching for, but, um, I was trying to like other people were complaining that, uh, their Chromebooks would not, um, would reboot instead of resume. Mm-hmm. And that led me to a 
uh, one of the bugs on chromium.org, which is somebody from Google opened it. Uh, it's titled Suspend Resume Issues with Pixel Legacy Boot Path. And it's this long bug where he explains... Um, Suspend and resume is effectively broken when booting an OS via the legacy boot path on Pixel. Uh, the observed behavior is that the first suspend and resume will be successful and subsequent attempts to suspend will work, but then when the system wakes up, it will reset instead of resuming. So that was pretty much the issue that I was seeing, although I wasn't able to do it the first time. At least um, I knew that it had something to do with it rebooting instead of resuming. So then he gives like the technical explanation and it says that um, the reset in this case is happening because the TPM resume command is failing. The command is failing because the TPM was not sent a TPM save state command before entering suspend. The workaround for this part of this issue is to load the TPM driver in the kernel with mod pro whatever. Um, so that led me to looking into how the TPM chip affects suspend and resume. And so I booted my Arch Linux distro and then did um, RM mod TPM to mm -hmm. unload the TPM uh, module, kernel module. And then I would try and suspend and resume and I would get the same behavior where it would reset instead of resume. So with the module loaded, it would work fine. So I knew that it was something to do with the TPM chip. And granted, like just Googling this um, happened to land me on this bug. But I think if this bug were not here, there would be no way that I would realize it was this this issue. Um, right. But obviously, somebody from Google had already analyzed this because they have, um, you know, they know more about uh, Chromebook internals than I do. So then, um, once I figured it out, it was the TPM stuff uh, that reminded me because somebody had just asked about it on MISC the other day, or maybe the other week by now, uh, that or ThinkPad would not resume or suspend and resume and somebody said change the BIOS settings to disable the TP TPM chip. So right. those two things together pretty much pointed me in the direction of okay, we need I, I need to figure out how to disable the TPM chip on the Chromebook. Um and since I couldn't figure out how to do that, I wrote the driver to send that safe state command. So the other thing that I'm looking at here is, okay, so um, the TPM is trusted uh, platform module, mm -hmm. and it's basically, like, the idea behind it is to have some sort of management for cryptographic keys um, and digital rights and all these kind of things. So maybe that's why it wasn't looked at, like, for OpenBSD, because... Uh, some of the stuff that people are using it for, it says digital rights management, protection and enforcement of software licenses, and prevention of cheating in online games. I guess those are some other uses. Um, but the I think the idea here is that suspend and resume in Chrome, um, they're obviously doing disk encryption, and so they're probably encrypting your... Um, uh, like swap and stuff when you suspend so that the machine can't be, like, messed with while it's in a suspended state, and then when you resume, they decrypt it. And um, OpenBSD does the same thing, and uh, all that stuff is encrypted and um, restored on resume, but it does not use the TPM in order to do that. So I guess we get the same type of functionality that they're achieving with this TPM without having to fuss with extra hardware. Uh, so we never had an OpenBSD driver because we didn't really need it for anything. Um, a long right. time ago, there was a NetBSD driver that someone wrote for the TPM chip that in a like userland library to work with it. And I ended up porting that. Um, I actually still have the patch that I uh, wrote to port his driver to OpenBSD. I think this was back in like 2007. Um, mm -hmm. But basically, it's the TPM chip... like you could talk to it from userland and store like an SSH key inside of the TPM chip so that mm -hmm. physically you can't read back that SSH key. You can just tell the TPM chip to like encrypt stuff with that key that it has stored. So that's kind of cool, but there wasn't really um, an urgent need for it. So um, 
And I think at the time when I proposed that diff, um, Marcus emailed me and said that he wanted to integrate similar functionality into an existing driver, um, but he didn't want like all of the other stuff that the TPM driver brought. Um, And it just, you know, obviously never panned out. Um, But Chrome OS is using the TPM chip a lot. And what it does is mostly um, it's all of the uh, secure boot stuff. And Uh it's probably not, I probably shouldn't call it secure boot because it's not actually like the normal secure boot that like Windows uses. But it's a similar thing where the there's like root keys stored in the um, in the ROM, and then when you first power it on, the like core boot uses those keys to verify that the kernel um, that it's about to load is signed with one of those keys, and then when mm-hmm. the kernel loads, that verifies that the keys that whatever it's loading next has been signed with, you know, one of those keys. And so you have that like chain of trust. And so, um, it's actually one of the like good security features of Chrome OS, because if any part of that chain has been screwed with, it won't boot. So you basically can't get like a, uh, um, like, you know, that the hardware can't be messed with basically. Right. And there's like some additional stuff with it, like remote, um, what is it called? Remote attestation, which is a way yeah. that a remote server can verify that the hardware that you're on is uh, has not been like backdoored, right? Which is really bizarre, and I don't really understand how that works. Um, but yeah, so obviously, like if Chrome OS, uh, you know, resumed and the TPM chip was in a weird state, that would be like a potential security problem. So its right. default is then, oh, I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to reboot the system. Yep, that makes sense. Yep. So uh, now that I have that TPM driver, I was able to um, work, or I was able to suspend and resume the machine, and it and it worked like very. It worked wonderfully. I was actually surprised because um, as soon as I got the driver you know, talking to the TPM chip and reading the responses properly. Um, mm-hmm. And then I did that like first suspend and resume. It just came right back up and I was like, oh, awesome. Um, yeah. And so that allowed me to start working on my uh, trackpad driver, which does not resume properly. Okay. Um, and I think it's just like missing a reinitialization thing on resume because actually the, uh, the kernel driver for that trackpad that is on in the Linux kernel. If you Mm -hmm. just like when I boot my Linux, um, SD card, it actually has the same problem when it resumes, uh, the trackpad doesn't work. So like I was looking at how some of these people that are running regular Linux on their Chromebooks, Chromebook pixels are solving this. And they have all these like stupid hacks that you have to like put in so that when the machine resumes, it like runs this user land, command that sends a bunch of i2c commands to reinitialize the hardware and i'm like why don't you just put it in the kernel like what's what's the point of that so obviously like uh chrome os must be doing that because it obviously the trackpad works when you resume in chrome os um so i just need to um analyze all these uh long packet dumps to figure out what linux is doing that i'm not doing yeah well, that's awesome. So that that particular piece of hardware is actually coming along a lot better than uh, the HP Chromebook is. Yeah, and then uh, I got bored and I wrote a uh, ACPI driver for the ambient light sensor because it mm-hmm. has one of those too. And so, like, if you put your hand up to like where the webcam is, you can see like that the um, driver is reading lower light values and all that. So I was going to hook that into the. Uh, X dimmer program that I wrote that dims yeah. the screen automatically after you stop typing for a while. Uh, and I was going to make it hook into that. So it'll dim the, like when the room that you're in is dark, it will automatically dim the screen a bit and increase the keyboard backlight. And then when it detects that you're suddenly in a bright room, it'll reverse those and jack the screen brightness up and the keyboard backlight down. So it'll work like a real machine. Yeah, that'll be awesome. I'm actually curious. I'd like to see that X dimmer. Um, I was poking around 
um, I don't know, maybe a few weeks ago looking for the power management settings on the display, and I guess uh, those don't work because of the driver that we're using, but um, XDimmer would work, right? It, it would just talk to the driver. Um, I could use that for idle time and stuff like that, right? I could say, like, hey, it's been idle for, like, 30 seconds. Go ahead and dim this. Yeah, XDimmer uses the native X backlight uh, controls, and ah. so you don't have that on... Uh, no, I have the Intel backlight program that you wrote. Right, because we don't have uh, Intel DRM, but um, I don't have the X backlight property either because we're not using the Intel uh, video driver for Xorg on um, Broadwell. We're using mm -hmm. the mode set driver, which is kind of oh, weird. That's right. Um, so I was looking into like hooking the, but on because we have Intel DRM, you get the WSCon CTL display dot brightness, which right. you don't have on the HP. Um, so I was looking into like exporting a X backlight control that would actually just talk to WSCon's display dot brightness, but it ended up being like really hairy because then the X server has to open the additional dev WS display device. And it would just, it was a whole mess. And I'm like, well, we're probably just going to get an updated uh, Intel DRM driver pretty soon from Katanis. And then we'll switch back to the Xorg Intel driver and then we'll have working X backlight. So just wait. Wait it out. Yeah, it seems like uh, Chromebooks have kind of like polarized views. I, I heard some uh, comments made, um, I, I can't remember it was, on IRC somewhere. Someone said something about the Chromebooks, the, the lengths that we go through to get uh, OpenBSD running on a Chromebook uh, versus uh, ThinkPad or something else. But um, I don't know. I mean, um, a lot of the stuff that I'm working on with the Chromebook, like it's not really any different than any other machine that isn't a ThinkPad. I mean, on my Samsung that I had, I had to write the DWIC driver, the iHID dev, the IMS, the ITP driver. That was all mm -hmm. new stuff because it was new hardware. Um, the Chromebook that I, the Chromebook Pixel, like it needs a new um, trackpad driver, but like this right. trackpad can be found on other machines. It's a regular Atmel uh, chip. Like it's nothing weird and proprietary. Um, the only real proprietary thing on here is the Chrome EC which um, is basically just giving me additional functionality. It's not really like anything that you have to like hack around to get working. Um, and then it's like, because I'm trying to still dual boot with Chrome OS, that the installation is a bit hairy. But like, if I didn't want that, I could just blow it all away and it would be a lot easier to install OpenBSD. Um, right. So it wouldn't be any different than like trying to get OpenBSD uh, to dual boot on a machine with like Windows or whatever. I mean, like, the lengths that I had to go to to get uh, OpenBSD dual-booted with macOS on my MacBook Air, um, and I had that really long GitHub just to explain how to do it, um, it's not much different. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to see uh, your work happening on this. I've been kind of, like, sitting stagnant on it. I uh, I didn't actually... I, I think we talked last week, and I was going to try and, and power on that uh, EMC or e EMMC. MMC. Yeah. And, um, and I, I don't think, I think I tried for like maybe an hour and then I kind of like got distracted with other stuff. Um, it's kind of cool stuff and it's kind of related to technology. Um, and maybe we will segue into that, but, um, you know, I fly multi-rotors and, uh, I, I was kind of like tired of buying a new piece of hardware and then you have to like, flash the firmware on the speed controllers and you flash the firmware on the flight controller and I'm like oh my gosh this is like a computer only it's worse because it's all embedded stuff <laughs> and so I bought a new one and it was like in the box and they're like all you have to do is put in your receiver and you go and um, of course that's not at all how it works and uh, the first thing I found was like the speed controllers um they have this protocol called one shot and what it is one shot is like this uh pulse width synchronization between when the flight controller sends this pulse width 
and when the speed controller is pulling for the pulse width and all it does is it synchronizes those two loops so that the speed controller is updating right when the flight controller is saying here's your new data and um, they actually made the um, the increments faster so the resolution is higher and I guess the one shot 125 they have like this 125 to 250 microsecond um, pulse width and they're like, oh my gosh, this is huge. This is a great breakthrough. And I will tell you, like having flown this, um, you know, antiquated version of that where you don't have any synchronization and this, it's night and day difference. And I was like, oh, that's great, you know. And I buy this new quad and it says right on the speed controller, one shot, 125. And I'm like, great, this is going to be perfect. And you can't even use it out of the box. They're like, well... Um, yeah, there was a batch of ours that didn't have the firmware correct. And so I go to start to fiddle with this. And of course, um, you need like a USB to something programmer. And I was like, oh, okay, I have like a million of those. And then, uh, someone else suggested, oh, you can flash it through clean flight and clean flight is like this software. It's a, a Chrome browser plugin, um, that lets you, manipulate the flight controller so then you have to install this uh, firmware flasher for the speed controllers that then talks through clean flight that then updates the speed controllers so you don't have to plug in this USB to uh, serial programmer to every ESC you just talk to the flight controller it sends the reprogramming commands to the each speed controller and then voila you're done and I'm like oh my gosh this is everything I hate about like computing and it's now invaded my hobby and like <laughs> I can't even buy the ready to buy like the ready to fly stuff and just throw it in the air and have it go. <laughs> so that was my frustration and um we've been having fun like the my my kids and I we've been flying quads and we've been having a good time with it but uh I have not been able to flash the firmware on my speed controllers um through my fancy flight controller. So I'm still flying in this antiquated version, even though I bought hardware that says I have the latest and greatest version of this stuff. So, yeah. That all sounds not fun if you just want to, like, fly the things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, here's here's the two-edged sword, and, and I kind of wanted to talk about this tonight, too, because I feel like it's happening a little bit in, in other areas, too, but... Um, the the cost of flying radio-controlled aircraft is coming down because the cost of the technology is coming down. So we have these flight controllers that literally are open-source hardware with schematics, chip documentation, everything, open-source firmware, and um, what was it? I guess DARPA funded uh, the... Uh, autonomous vehicles to drive through the, through the desert and the flight controller that won or the uh, controller that won has been open sourced and you can buy it now for like 15 bucks now the problem is is that all this hardware is being produced and it's such junk um, so you have two markets you have the, the mass produced junk where you might buy like five or six of something and expect two to work, or you pay like $150 for a single part, and it still might not work, and you still might have to send it back, but it's supposed to be better. And the reality is they're identical schematics, they're identical components, it's just that the quality assurance is kind of left to you. You have to go through, and sometimes you... You know, you'll have to resolder things or you'll have to, like, throw out one of the speed controllers that catches on fire because, you know, one of the gates was not uh, soldered down all the way and so it was arcing and then it heats up and poof. But the thing is, is four speed controllers for, like, 30 bucks versus spending $30 a speed controller, no one's going to do it. And so we're in this kind of, like, junk um, commodity culture, I guess, where we want the the parts to be as absolute horrible as possible, but that's okay. We'll learn how to manage it. And I think that that's happening in so many areas. 
Um, I see it happening in software development. I see it happening in the hardware that we use. Like Intel is not like some amazing, well-developed processor. It's just the most horsepower you can get for the least amount of money. <laughs> and that's what we do. And so technology is uh, bleeding over into many different mindsets. You know, it's it's kind of like our disposable society. Uh, we live not far from the Amish. And they use things until they're worn out and cannot do another thing with them. And like, they'll, you know, if they, if they harvest an animal, I mean, they'll use the skin and the hooves and the brains and the guts and the this and the that and the other thing. And they'll get every little last bit of, bit of meat out of this animal so that nothing goes unused. Where I'm sitting here buying eight speed controllers and hoping that four of them work. <laughs> so. Anyway, that's that's one of those things right now that um, in technology in general, I just think is a bad direction to be. I, I don't even know how we entertain it is, is really what I'm getting at. And yet it's the norm uh, in everything that we do And the companies that are selling the really high end products. They're suffering from the same problem because guess what they're doing? They're buying from the same manufacturers who are producing the junk. And they're saying, well, you need to quality assurance, uh, do better quality assurance on our items. And guess what? That company can't do it. <laughs> so you run into the same thing even with the expensive equipment, even though it happens less frequently. Uh, did you see that those uh, series of videos on Wired um, where they went to Shenzhen? Uh-uh. It's very interesting. Um, it's They're like talking about how... Um, like everything is so cheap there and there's like no intellectual property and everyone's just copying off of each other. And you can like mm -hmm. go to like these giant markets and there's just like every possible little hardware part that you could find and you can, you know, make whatever you want or you can, and there's all these companies where you can just go there and say like, you want a copy of this device and they'll make it for you as cheaply as possible. And mm -hmm. it's kind of just like this race to the bottom um, and that they don't, see any problem with that over there like they um they think that that's like a good thing and i think that yeah. that's where a lot of this stuff is coming from like you know those um those like two-wheeled uh little scooter things that like self-balance yes and you know like as soon as you saw like one of them there were suddenly like 30 different companies making them and they all basically looked identical mm -hmm. um i think that that's like that's happening in a lot of these areas um is basically just, you know, somebody makes the initial product and then it just gets copied a million times. Um, and all these, all the copies are these cheap, uh, imitations of it. And they kind of just flood the market because nobody, then nobody's, nobody wants to pay for that, uh, expensive version that was around first, uh, because you can just go on Amazon and buy one that costs half as much from a no-name company. You are absolutely correct, and I'm going to completely validate what you just said by holding up the label from the components that I just got. Um, in order to replace the one-shot speed controllers that do not work, I have ordered V-Good speed controllers, and on here it is Shenzhen V-Good RC Technology Company LTD, and they are obviously from Shenzhen, China. And uh, this, it, it's crazy to say that these are the highest quality speed controllers that you can buy right now. And they're from the exact center of the mass production, copying, stealing, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, um, the only difference here is that um, this particular brand that they're producing, someone came along and they have um, taken the hardware design and an engineer has said, oh, well, we need a filter here and we want to have these particular features enabled here. And um, I guess they have some agreement with uh, VGood or Shenzhen. I don't know who, who this exact person is. And they um, won't substitute out lesser quality components and uh, they do use things like uh, solder with lead in it, mm. and um, they do a very good job making these particular components. If I took a picture side-by-side -side of this speed controller next to the quote-unquote crappy one, um, you would see like the components are centered on the board, the 
solder joints are all very clean and well done. So um, it, I, I don't get how they're built in the exact same company and under the exact same roof, and we can't get a little bit better quality. But uh, yes, it's exactly what's happening, and what you're saying uh, is completely validated by the parts that I'm holding in my hands right now. Yeah, well, it's like they figured out how to duplicate hardware over there, but the software is all garbage. So, like, um, if you go on Amazon and you search for, like, outdoor IP camera, there's, like, a mm-hmm. million of them, and they're, they all look really similar, but they're all from these companies that you've never heard of before. And so all of them have, like, you know, a different firmware on them, and it's all crap because it's, you know, some company that you've never heard of. Um, but then, like, if you want to buy, an actual, like, a real one from a reputable company, it's, you know, two or three times as much. Um, because it actually comes with support and, you know, decent firmware and updates and all that other stuff. But, um, to a lot of people, they don't really care about that. They just want something cheap. Yeah. And in the case of these little flight controllers and speed controllers, the firmware that we're putting on these is done by, um, two different places. There's, um, clean flight and base flight, which are a fork from multi-Wii. So everybody's working on the same firmware for the flight controllers. And then there's two of them for the speed controllers, BL Heli and Simon K, um, are the two different uh, firmware manufacturers. And basically the way it works is they all have these like Atmel or ARM CPUs on them. And these firmwares go on there and they support these particular protocols. And they uh, you can tune the settings in this interface that they have. So the the manufacturer in china doesn't even have to worry about the firmware because it's already done you know they just say oh that's this chip flash it and then they're done and and the consumer can do the same thing so in this case i guess maybe we get lucky or maybe it doesn't matter i don't know if if we just put na in that column or not but i i know exactly what you're talking about with the particular firmware on on that stuff yeah well i guess we're all screwed <laughs> I mean, I perpetuate it just as much as everybody else. I keep buying this cheap junk. <laughs> and, uh, oh, there's a company. Who is it? In, uh, anyhow, there's a company out of Germany, and they make this really, really good hardware, same type of stuff, and they have uh, closed source firmware for it. And it is literally the best piece of hardware and software that you can buy. Uh, with one caveat, uh, because of the type of, I guess, current that we're pushing through these particular speed controllers, there are a lot of them that give off the magic smoke. And once they give off the magic smoke, the magic is gone and they don't work anymore. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, it, it's not a problem isolated even just to China or um, you know, Shenzhen or whatever people stealing designs. This is a company who designed their own hardware and, uh, board and components and all this kind of stuff. And they're manufacturing themselves. And, you know, they do have problems with, I think I bought eight of these particular speed controllers from this company. And, um, I had three that wound up being usable from it and they were willing to, uh, handle a return which was great uh unlike the you know the grab box you get from shenzhen Mm -hmm. and some of these places were like hey i bought eight and they're like yeah sorry have fun (laughs) (laughs) uh these people will send you new speed controllers and and get them working again but i don't know it's not isolated and they are not manufactured in in china in shenzhen so Hmm. oh well i guess next time we can talk about uh building some mobile applications for Safari and, and Go because I had some fun things that uh, I ran into and learned when I was doing that. All right. Um, I guess we can wrap it up then. Yep. Uh, all right. That's it for this episode. If there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about besides mobile app development on iOS, you can reach us on Twitter at GarbageFM or through our website at garbage.fm. Brandon, how can people reach you? You can find me on Twitter. I'm at no mercy mod. 
you can sometimes see me on Google+, Plus, but uh, come say hi in IRC every once in a while. We're on uh, Metabug, usually complaining about stuff, and you can also, I guess, unofficially let, uh, let us know if you're something you like or don't like about the show. You can come on there and let us know as well. That's on uh, Freenode, by the way. Yes, Freenode. Metabug on Freenode. Uh, I'm on the web at jcs.org and on Twitter at jcs and on Freenode at uh, as jcs. There's a theme there. I'm yeah. just jcs everywhere. And if I can't be if jcs you're... on your service, I'm not going to sign up. Yeah, no service <laughs> for you. <laughs> Fun stuff. Oh.